This is Regina Barbara DeGraff, host of Spark Science, and you are listening to our episode about new science ideas and inclusive education. We recorded on location at the Sackness Convention in Long Beach, California. Here we go. Neutron, proton, mass defect, lyrical oxidation, your irrelevant mass spectrograph, your electron volt, atomic energy erupting as I get all open on betatrons, gamma rays, thermal cracking, cyclotron, any and every mic you're on, transuranium, if y'all was uranium, molecule spontaneous combustion, Bam. Law of definite proportion gaining weight on every element around. This is Spark Science. This is Regina Barber DeGraff, and we're exploring stories of human curiosity. I am here with Randall Acosta, and I'm going to let him tell us a little bit about his position at NASA, and then we'll get this interview started. Hi, as Regina mentioned, my name is Randall Acosta. I'm a systems engineer currently working for Jet Propulsion Laboratories. I've been at JPL full-time for approximately a year and a half, but I worked at JPL prior to that as an academic part-time employee. So collectively, my time at JPL is maybe about three and a half years. But during my time at JPL, I've worked a, a, a multitude of projects, even within the three years, both planetary exploration related and uh, earth science. Two of the projects right now that I help support are both earth science missions. One of them is GRACE follow-on, and the other one is NISAR. So you were saying you've worked on three different projects. I would like to hear more about planetary exploration. Um, we've had many Mars um, scientists on the show, but I would like to know maybe about planetary exploration outside of Mars, so maybe moons of Jupiter or anything like that. Your colleague here also said that you used to work in the clean room, and I wanted you to tell me something about that, because maybe our listeners don't really know what a clean room is before we get into like planetary exploration. So one of the new upcoming missions that they're working on is called GRACE Follow-On. Now, what GRACE Follow-On is, is it's essentially an Earth science mission that's used to map gravitational fields for Earth. So it's two spacecrafts that orbit around the Earth in tandem with each other, and the distance between the two spacecrafts is measured very precisely using a, a laser. And as the two spacecraft end up passing over different land formations, so mountains, other things like that, or valleys, the first spacecraft will actually either rise or follow, fall, and that changes the distance between the two spacecraft. And that's measured with the laser. And measuring that minute change in the laser's distance, they're able to measure and predict uh, patterns for the gravitational waves. So our students actually went to LIGO and went through the tour for um, measuring um, gravitational waves, and they're using land-based interferometer, and you're talking about the space-based interferometer, which is sounds super exciting. And for our listeners, he's using a lot of hand movements, and he's like showing us the orbits and stuff, but um, hopefully you can check out something about And what was this mission called again one more time? Race follow-on. Okay, so you can go ahead and check out that mission to see maybe good visuals on, on what he's talking about. Um, on the note that when you're dealing with planetary exploration, a lot of times we're looking at other planets because there's an interest in finding life outside of our world, right? So in the event that you do discover life on another planet, you want to be 100% certain that we didn't bring it there. So that's essentially the importance of having these high-level clean rooms. For example, the Curiosity rover for MSL, Mars Science Laboratory, that was built in a class uh, 100,000 clean room. The 100,000 implies that per cubic foot, there is no more than 100,000 particles that are all each less than half a uh, micron across in diameter. And now most people aren't immediately familiar with how big a micron is, but if you were to look at a human hair, the average human hair is about 100 microns across. And so each of these particles are about half of a micron, so that would be one two hundredth of the width of a hair. 
which is pretty intense. And if you were to compare that to a typical hospital, hospitals or even a, the average house is on the um, on the order of 200 to 300,000 particles per cubic foot. If you're outside in like your typical polluted air, like we're here in Los Angeles, you can see it easily be five or sixfold that. It is smoggy this morning. Was that smog or is that fog? I think that was um, that was definitely fog this morning, but it could have been a combination of both. Can you add something about like, what was it like to go into those clean rooms? Like what did you have to wear? Like what was the preparation? It depends on the cleanliness requirements of the project itself. So for interplanetary missions like MSL, Mars Science Laboratory, we're sending uh, a spacecraft and a rover to another planet. So you want to make sure that whatever you find there on that planet you didn't bring from, from your home planet, whatever biological um, pieces of evidence you gain. But for something that's like an Earth science mission, you don't have to have as stringent cleanliness requirements. So when you go into the cleanliness room, or the clean room, for a lower class clean project, you only have to wear what's called a frock. And a frock isn't a full bunny suit, so it doesn't cover your legs, shins can be exposed, you don't have to wear gloves. But if it's for something like MSL that I mentioned before, we had to wear full bunny suits. And they get hot, they get sweaty, they're uncomfortable. And in addition to having to wear the suits, we had to put on two layers of gloves, the latex gloves, and duct tape them around the wrist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like that you're like, yeah. So before we get into other like space missions, can we kind of go back in the Wayback Machine and like talk about how did you get in, involved in science? How did you get interested in science as like a child or as a young adult? Do you have um, a time in which like you know that, that this is the moment where I wanted to be a scientist? There, there is a pretty defined point in time where I decided, hey, I am interested in space. But if I wanted to go back all the way to the very beginning, um, I lived in Tucson, Arizona for quite some time. And so in, in Tucson, Tucson is different from Los Angeles in the sense that there's not as much pollution. So the night sky is a lot more visible, a lot more clear. So as a child, I spent a lot of time looking at the stars. Um, as I, I grew up, I knew that I was interested in sciences. But it wasn't until that I attended Cal Poly Pomona and found out that they have an aerospace engineering program that I really started to get involved with space exploration. Can you tell me about any other space missions that you've been involved in? Because you said you've been working for a short amount of time. Um, there's, there's one. It's actually a smaller class project. It's almost a, um, an extension to Curiosity, the MSL, Mars Science Laboratory. And this project was titled LDSD. And that stands for Low Density Supersonic Decelerator. So low density refers to the atmosphere of Mars because the atmosphere of Mars is a lot less dense than that of Earth. I think it's a, on average about half the density of Earth. So with a lower density, as you know you're entering the atmosphere, there's less friction, there's less braking power in a sense. So you come screaming into this Mars atmosphere, there's not much particles to slow you down. The project that I was working on, LDSD, is an extension of the entry vehicle. So the entry vehicle is pretty much your heat shield. It's that giant parabolic dish, and it has that ablative material. Ablative just means it burns away as it heats up. With that base heat shield, what they did is they added an additional piece to the outside called a SIAD. Now, SIAD is another acronym. JPL loves acronyms. It stands for Supersonic Inflatable Aerodynamic Device. So the, what it does is it essentially looks like a giant donut. And when they inflate it, it increases the surface area of the heat shield itself, so it essentially increases your uh, deceleration factor. So it slows them down a lot. So, but the cool thing about this is that they're actually able to kind of control um, with different thrusters the direction that 
the entry vehicle is headed, so they're able to reduce their, their landing ellipse to a pretty specific area. Landing ellipse is just like the approximated area that you're expected to land in. You work for NASA. This is a job that many of my listeners, many of my students, this is like their dream job. Um, is there any advice you would give them to um, help them get to that dream if they wanted to work for NASA? Yeah, actually, there, there's um, some pretty good advice. And if I, I had to break it down into two general categories, one would be maintain your, your academics above all. Maintain a solid GPA because a lot of the opportunities out there are really competitive, just like scholarships. So if you want to earn a scholarship, you want to have a really high GPA. If you're applying for a job position and the minimum GPA is a 3.0 and a lot of the people who are applying are 3.8s, 3.9s, you really want to be in that 3.8, 3.9 range. Um, the second component to the advice that I'd want to give is networking. It's definitely good to become familiar with not only staff and faculty from whatever academic institution you're at, but if you do have an internship somewhere or some kind of employment position, become familiar with your line management and your group supervisors because you want to make them happy so they can make their bosses happy. And essentially, in the long term, it gets you a lot of recognition for the work that you do. That's like really, really good advice. And here at the Sechness National Convention, like that's all there is here. Like right? I shouldn't say that's not. It's a networking event. It's a science and networking event. I usually ask this from my um, interviewees too. Is there a story that you tell maybe at a at a dinner party or like if you're in a in a room full of people that aren't necessarily NASA people or aren't necessarily even scientists? Is there a story you tell them about about working at NASA? Is there like a fun story that you always tell? It's like your go-to. Uh, okay, yes, and this, this relates to the hiring process. This is funny because it's, it's more of a personal story. It's not really um, science-centric at all. So when, when I first applied to, to JPL, um, it took them about six months to finally give me a phone call response, about six months. They were really busy. And I came in um, for one of my initial interviews around January of 2013. It wasn't until four months later in April that they actually called me in to go meet them on lab. So six months waiting for the phone call and then another four months until they invited me to lab for a tour. When I went for the on lab interview, and mind you, this is during April, I'll tell you what day after. <laughs> I finished the, the round of interviews and I'm speaking with one of the HR representatives and the comment I made to her was that, seems like I played my cards right. I believe they're gonna give me the internship, right? Just like, oh, that, that's the thing, they're not going to give you the internship. says, you must have really imp impressed my, my supervisor because they want to hire you as a part-time employee. So when they hire me, I come in for my first day of work, and as I show up, the same HR representative approached me and she says, you didn't get the memo? You didn't respond to the email, they gave your position to someone else. And then turns to me and says, April Fools. That is horrible. That's a horrible story. That is. That is my beginnings at JPL. But it says that NASA has a sense of humor, a sadistic sense of humor, but they do. Humor is an important component to maintaining your sanity. And there's a lot of difficult stuff that we do at Jet Propulsion Laboratories, a lot of stuff that's not done anywhere else in the world. Um, we, are, we lead the forefront and pioneers for exploring Mars. Having a good sense of humor, it's definitely good in the long run. So and after that first day, I've loved every day since at JPL. So this is the last question I'll ask you, and it's about pop culture. First, what's your like favorite pop culture thing? 
right now? What's like your favorite thing? And then second, how is your field, whatever your um, profession is from maybe your undergrad major or maybe your position now, how is that portrayed in, in the media and how, how do you feel about that? The first question is somewhat not applicable to myself because I've become somewhat of a homebody recently. I recently started my master's program at UCLA. So after work, because I work a full 40, 40 plus hours a week, I normally go home and sit there and work on my, my classes. So not much of a, a, a social life at the moment. But once I have my, my master's degree and I get the salary increase, I expect my social life to improve tenfold. And then maybe I can make a comment on pop culture at that point in time. <laughs> okay, so, so nothing. Like, even when you're growing up, like, you saw, like, an engineer or a scientist, like, on TV, nothing, none of that, did any of it um, affect you going into science? Maybe being a kid and watching Wile E. Coyote and his engineering adeptness. <laughs> He's so good at it. Right? I want to say thank you for talking to me, and I, I learned a lot. Is there anything you would like to add? Shoot for the moon. Even if you miss, you'll land amongst the stars. Beautiful. Well, thank you, Randall. Again, thank you so much for talking to me. Not a problem. Appreciate the opportunity. This is Spark Science, this is Regina Barber de Graff, and I am at the Sackness National Convention in Long Beach. And I'm here, and I'm gonna let you introduce yourself and tell us your position and what you do in science. What kind of scientist are you? Okay, my name is Julia Darcy, and I am an assistant professor of chemistry at Washington University in St. Louis. And my area of expertise are conducting polymers, energy storage, and fluid flow dynamics. So how do droplets evaporate, and how can I control droplet evaporation to make new types of materials? For my master's degree, I actually worked with polymers and computational models of polymers. <laughs> and so could we, like, just for our listeners, talk about what is a polymer? Sure. Yeah, and how do you use it in your work? Sure. So a polymer is basically a noodle. Molecular scale, you can think of them as a molecular noodle. It's just a very disordered chain of atoms, but they have very interesting properties. For example, these chains can be highly disordered or they can be more ordered. And by controlling that disorder, you can control the properties of polymers. So in my case, I make plastics that conduct electricity. So the polymers that I synthesize are materials that have the same properties as semiconductors. You can control how much conductivity can flow through a piece of plastic. And what's really interesting about that is that these materials have been around since the 60s. Actually, it led to a Nobel Prize in the year 2000 for the control of, of the properties of these materials. So far, there are not many commercial applications for them. But one of the goals of my lab is to try to use these materials for making batteries and capacitors and uh, things that can store energy, something that's very important. So controlling uh, the properties of polymers for storing energy or for storing information is something that is still very active today as a field for research. I remember little from that. That was a long time ago. I also want to ask, so is there a story that you like to tell at parties, maybe you're around non-scientists and you want to kind of explain what you do or explain something, you know, interesting about science? So what's interesting, I think, about what I do 
is that I am really curious about fluid flow dynamics and how, how do fluids affect the synthesis of new materials. And in my case, I use droplets of reactants that become polymers. One of the things that I like to talk about a lot is wine. Because, uh, at, a, at a dinner party? At a dinner party. Because wine has really cool uh, fluid flow dynamic properties. For example, wine uh, is described as having legs or wine is described as crying. So you might have heard of something called the tears of wine. And the tears of wine is basically a phenomenon where the ethanol concentration in wine is not homogeneous in a glass of wine. So if you have a glass of wine and you put it on a table, and I'm going to assume that you're drinking out of a glass, not a plastic cup, the glass will start to show tears. Basically, you will see that there's some kind of fluid movement on the walls of the glass, even if you're not drinking the wine. So you don't have to stir it. You just leave it on, a, on your table, you walk away, you come back a few minutes later, and you will notice that there's, the glass looks wet, even though you haven't actually drank any fluid. And you, and you haven't swished it around or anything? You have not moved it around or anything. And so this phenomenon has been around since the Old Testament, and it was first reported by uh, King Solomon. The reason why this happens is because basically wine is comprised of water and alcohol. Alcohol lowers the surface tension of water. But because the concentration of ethanol is not homogeneous, you're going to have a concentration difference in surface tension. And this leads to directional fluid flow in what is referred to as the Marangoni flow, Marangoni phenomenon. Marangoni was a physicist, graduate student, a physics uh, graduate student, who learned in a convention from um, Lord Kelvin's brother, the guy who developed, developed the Kelvin scale. He heard from him at a presentation that the reason why, why wine cries is because of surface tension gradients. But no one actually published this work. So Marangoni wrote an entire thesis about it in his PhD uh, dissertation. And to this day, this is referred to as the Marangoni flow. And this is really one of the perfect stories of why you need to publish your work. Because Marangoni did not discover this, but we refer to it as the Marangoni flow. And it's a very cool phenomenon because it's responsible for a lot of things in nature. In my case, I evaporate droplets of water. And I look at how the surface tension of water affects the precipitation of materials out of water. And what I do specifically is that I make solutions of water that have catalysts in them. And I set up droplets on a surface. And I, I allow these droplets to evaporate. In the process of evaporation, I am trying to control all the surface tension phenomena that are associated with the evaporation of water. Capillary forces, coffee ring effects, Marangoni flow. Uh, these are basically fluid flow dynamic phenomena that allow you to control the mass transport of solute inside water or allows you to control the rate at which droplets evaporate. And what we try to do is we try to understand why do droplets evaporate at a certain rate and how do these rates affect the precipitation of reactants that I can then use for my material synthesis. I love that story about the wine. <laughs> that was awesome. So when did you want to be a scientist? Like when did that happen? We're going to go on the Wayback Machine and then was there a spark when you were a child? Did it happen in undergrad? Like do you remember the instant in which or was it not an instant in which you wanted to become a scientist? It was a very particular moment when I was an undergrad and I was really interested in the ions responsible for muscle movement in the human body. And I remember my biology professor telling me that my interest in ions is not really an interest in biology. And he, he told me to basically pursue chemistry if that's really what I cared about. And uh, I didn't understand it then, 
But I followed the advice and I took more chemistry courses. And eventually I really dig uh, chemistry and I really liked a lot of the research that I was doing in, uh, at my school. And uh, that's how everything got started for me. But it was through biology that I got into chemistry. Well, let's go back to your energy storage. Like, what what kind of practical uses would that be for? I mean, like, let's. I mean, I think many of our listeners and I can think about these ideas, but let's just lay them out. Like, why why is your research beneficial to the world? So, so energy storage is very important, right? And uh, there's no holy grail device out there that can give you the performance that you need. Batteries in car need to be recharged, and they don't get recharged at the rate that we want them to. They don't provide enough energy that you can travel thousands of miles on them. Cell phone batteries also need to be recharged. So ideally, there's still a lot of unknowns. We, we're, everyone's searching for a device that allows you to, to charge your batteries quickly and for a long time. So currently, what do people do, right? We use carbon as the ideal material for storing energy in devices that are known as electrochemical capacitors. Carbon has a lot of advantages, but unfortunately, the way that we make carbon is by burning coconut shell, for example. Carbon also has certain limitations. Carbon does not store as much energy as you want it to store. You also have other materials that allow you to store energy, not just carbon. Metal oxides is also a great material that allows you to store energy, but they also have their own limitations. Metal oxides tend to be insulating. So the ideal material for storing energy would be a material that allows you to develop some type of surface charge on it, or a material that allows you to be, allows you to oxidize it or reduce it, a material that allows you to remove electrons from it or accept electrons readily, and a material that's conductive. Furthermore, if this material happens to have a high surface area, then you have a very, you have a great candidate for storing energy because in the field of energy storage, surface energy is probably one of the most important things. The greater the surface area of an electrode, the more energy, in theory, you can store in that electrode. And this is true, it holds. It's not, a direct, it's not directly proportional, but it is proportional. So in the case of what I do, I am looking for new materials. Since the materials that are currently out there have stifling limitations, there's a lot of room for improvement. Plastics that conduct electricity are great materials because they are highly conductive if you control their structure. They are easily oxidized and reduced and you can also attach or adhere surface charges onto them if you know how to develop electrodes that have high surface areas. Furthermore, I am a nanotechnologist, so all my syntheses are geared towards making electrodes that have a high surface area. So I am interested in making polymer chains that pack into nanoscale architectures. When I do this, I typically end up making a material that has very good performance for power and energy. So power is it's, uh, basically rate, is how fast you can deliver charge over time. And if you wanted to accelerate an electric vehicle, you need a lot of power. If you wanted to drive long distances in an, in an electric vehicle, you need high energy density. Gasoline, hydrocarbons are really good at giving you a lot of energy. We're all trying to make materials that have an energy density close to that of uh, hydrocarbons, but not using hydrocarbons. Conducting polymers give you more energy than carbon materials. Conducting polymers are more conductive than metal oxides. And conducting polymers are synthesized in solution in the fume hood. And this allows you to make new structures in a beaker and apply them in an electrode in a battery.
So there's a lot of versatility with conducting polymers. It allows you to go as a chemist inside a fume hood, make a new material, and it requires very little engineering once you, de once you develop a device because the material properties are ideal. So conducting polymers are a really interesting candidate. Also, they are stable. Conducting polymers have been around since the 70s and they can attain conductivities as high as that of copper. That's incredible. Unfortunately, those polymers are unstable in air. Nowadays, we're able to synthesize polymers that have a much higher conductivity, but are stable in air. So, so energy storage is one of these fields where conducting polymers are a very attractive candidate for exploring the properties of energy storage. When you're talking about this and talking about conductivity and like surface area, I, I keep on thinking about the little I know about energy storage, reading or hearing about how what we really would like is to be able to transport batteries that actually can have that energy. Maybe there's one region of the world that has a lot of wind and we can like get, get that energy, but somehow we're losing it because um, that battery storage isn't really efficient. And is that what you mean by stable, that there's this leakage of, like once you put the energy into these devices, because it's conductive, some of it is going to you know, leave. I, I, I feel like when you're saying we want more conductivity, that kind of scared me because I was like, well, once we put it in, then it's going to easily come out if we don't want it to come out. So how does that work? So that is a really good question. So stability, right? There are many ways of defining it. In the case of a material that conducts electricity, in the case of a polymer, you have transport along the chains of the polymer and you have transport between chains that are close to each other. Because conducting polymers are semiconductors, we can easily control the amount of dopants or the amount of charge carriers, the amount of impurities that are present in the material. So we can control the electrical properties of these materials. Leakage current is a function of engineering. Leakage current can also be a function of the chemistry. And we need to find ways in which we can minimize the, the leakage current. For example, contact. When you say leakage current, you mean like losing the energy that you have stored? That's right. It means you've charged your battery, you don't turn on your car, you come back the next day and the battery is dead. You've lost some of these uh, charge carriers that you had stored, whether it's electrons or ions, they have left the electrode, they have left the conducting polymer. So why does that happen? Well, there are different reasons. For example, um, if the material that you've synthesized has imperfections, it does not have the right structure. Uh, conducting polymers have a conjugation length, which means alternating single and double bonds. The longer the conjugation length is, the more conductive they are. The shorter they are, the less. Leakage carrying can be a function of conjugation length. You can store materials, you can store ions on a conducting polymer, but if the conjugation length is short, the conductivity is gonna be low. If the ions that you store are too big, then that can also have an effect on how much of these ions will be retained on a surface. If the structure of the polymer is porous, you would want to fill those pores with ions. But are the ions going to stay inside the pores? You need to control the size of the ions. In an electrolyte, you need to control the solvation sphere of these ions going inside a pore. Sometimes, ions will shed their solvation sphere so they can actually fit inside a pore. But, but the stability of the ion is not the same as when it's solvated. So when you match the material structure to the properties of the ions in the electrolyte, you can also increase the efficiency of the battery and you can have less of a leakage current. Contact resistance is another reason why you would have leakage current. And in this case, you have to engineer these batteries and, and capacitors. You need to actually attach physical cables onto them. 
and you can you can do this uh, in different ways. And if you're not careful, um, over time, this point of contact will delaminate or will loosen up, and this will also lead to leakage current. The stability is a, it's one of the most important things for uh, electrochemical uh, capacitors, because you want to set up you want to use batteries, for example, on um, wind turbines. And these wind turbines are, turbines are really tall. And you want to put these capacitors on the top of these wind turbines so they can, so wind turbines can rotate from the left to the right so they can follow the wind pattern. You don't want to go to the wind turbines and have to change the capacitors often because they lose their capacity to retain energy. So stability is probably one of the most important things for you to develop an application. If you don't have enough power or enough energy out of a device, you can work around that. You can couple devices in parallel or you can couple them in, in series so you can control the amount of energy that you get out of them or power that you get out of them. But if they are unstable, you cannot commercialize or you cannot actually use that technology. So in my lab, stability is one of the key parameters for synthesizing materials and then for engineering them. This is Regina Barber de Graff, host of Spark Science, and you are listening to our episode about new science ideas and inclusive education. We recorded on location at the SACNES convention in Long Beach, California. I want to get to this conference because I'm also asking many of my uh, the people that I'm interviewing about this conference. So you said this is your first conference, and what do you think about the SACNES conference? Again, to um, our listeners, SACNES stands for Society for the Advancement of Chicanos, Hispanics, and Native Americans in Science, but it's really just a, a larger inclusion in science national society. So if this is the first time you've been here, how has your experience been? It's been amazing, and it's been amazing for two reasons. The students and the other uh, professional uh, people that I've met here, my colleagues that I've met also, also from uh, other schools. So on a personal level, I got a lot of invitations to go and present at other universities, which is incredibly important for, for me and, and all scientists. And typically when I go to other big conferences like, like MRS or ACS, I do get invitations. But here, the, the packing density of uh, faculty is concentrated. And so you do get to interact with a lot of other colleagues. And this is one of the reasons why I'm so happy that I came. The students is another reason. Because I have met so many great students with such vast potential. And my advice to all these students is always pursue a PhD. And one of the things that I've discovered here is that some of these students had not thought about that. And I am really happy that I got, I got a chance to tell them, tell them why they should. I think a student should always pursue a PhD in the sciences for different reasons. Undergrad and a master's is just not enough. There's just so much to learn. There's just so much more information out there. It's not possible that you learn it all or that you learn enough as an undergrad or a master's that you can actually make a significant contribution outside of the walls of uh, academia. Even if you go into an industry with a master's or an undergrad or a BS or BA, your job is not going to be as much fun as it could be with a PhD. And I know that initially maybe you're happy because you're getting money. But <laughs> this is very blunt talk. 
But at the end, but at the end of the day, you're not going to be happy over. It's a honeymoon period of when you get the job, you're happy. After six months, you realize that your potential is not being utilized in the company because, as a master's or an undergrad, you're going to be working for someone who has a PhD. So I also think that it's not all about the job that you're going to get, but more about the journey. I think that a PhD can teach you a lot about who you are as a person. I think that you're going to learn um, your true value uh, as well. Your contributions are going to be significant. Your contributions are going to be very clear and apparent to you and everyone else around you. And I think that that is a very addictive feeling for students. And I have seen it with many students, and it happened to me. When you get your first publication out, your life changes when you see your first name as an author. It's a very good feeling. And I think you owe it to yourself if you're a student to experience that. There's a greater likelihood that that will happen in a PhD simply because you're there for, long, for a longer time. Um, I don't think you should follow a PhD because you're going to get the right job and you're going to make a lot of money and life is going to be good. There are no guarantees, right? But the PhD, the experience itself, is a wonderful experience. The students that I have met at this conference, they have so much to offer. And I want all of them to find out their worth, their true worth. And when I hear a student tell me that they want to do a master's instead of a PhD, I want to know why. And what I've discovered is that a lot of the time, students don't know how much they're worth. And they aim for the master's because they think that that's what they are worth. They think that that's the path of least resistance for them to, be, to get to their end goal. But the path, the resistance is equal between a PhD and a master's. Master's students and PhD students take the same courses. Master's students and PhD students do the same kind of research. At a certain point, the master's student just stops coming to the lab because they graduated. But in my, in my opinion, that's when it gets fun. When you finish your courses, that's when the PhD really starts. That's when, it, that's when you get this experience of learning what you have inside. It's, a great, it, it's wonderful to see students that develop and they start contributing scientifically and they teach me and I learn from them. And typically a master's student doesn't get to that point because they graduate. They have to move on. They finish their coursework and then it's done. So I always want, want to know why you want to do a master's and not a PhD. And typically it's because a student doesn't know how much they're worth. And they think that this is the right thing for them because different reasons. But typically these reasons are wrong. The, it does not matter, it doesn't really, you know, you need perspective in life and sometimes we're just so full of emotion and there's so much noise around us that it permeates our way of thinking and that's what we, why we make sometimes wrong decisions. Instead of doing a PhD, you do a master's. I, I think everyone should do a PhD. Well, thank you so much for talking with me. This was very enlightening for me as well. So thank you so much. Thank you, Regina. I really appreciate it. So I'm here at the SACNAS National Convention, 
and we are here on the last day here and I'm with my buddy Dr. Corey Welch but I'm here with him and I want to talk about what he does for SACNUS, um, what is SACNUS and what he does at Iowa State University. SACNUS is the Society for the Advancement of Chicano, Hispanic and Native American Scientists. It's the largest uh, multidisciplinary multi-ethnic science organization in the country. It's about 43 years old and it's uh, there's chapters, like 115 chapters around the country. We have a big national conference where pretty much every major university in the country is here recruiting. We have a thousand students presenting research. I think I want to go, go into that story you have about science or the science you do or maybe about SACNUS. Just a, a really good story because our tagline is uh, sharing stories of human curiosity. So, I'll give an example. So of the work I do is I work with underrepresented populations and helping those students get into science or whatever academic career they want within across the field of STEM. Uh, there's a student that I worked with that I think her experience captures a lot of some of the challenges, but more importantly, the strengths that this student has and why I'm very confident she's going to succeed. She's currently in graduate school, but this is a small town, California, Latina. She got into research through a, a first-timer kind of program, liked it, did well enough in college, graduated from a good school. She wasn't always completely clear about the pathway to graduate school, certainly at the beginning. One of the challenges for her was her family getting her to leave California so that she could go on for a post back program and then eventually graduate school. So it took some time to culturally and familiarly train them about the pathways into science. You know, it would be great to be able to stay right in, within a 50-mile radius. So um, one of the comments that she had in particular was her mom, when she was leaving, she got accepted to this very prestigious program. Her mom's question to her was, how am I going to get your body back if you die? So that's some heavy stuff to throw on a daughter, but in reality, there's some, there's some pragmatic realism that I had to talk with that student to kind of decouple some of the feelings she was having about that. Maintaining that connection is really crucial for that student's success and bringing their family along through the process. How do you talk to your colleagues that maybe don't have that experience of a very strong family connection or maybe don't, don't understand that a lot of these students are really struggling with their identity between these two worlds. Like how do you how do you get a colleague who isn't familiar with that world to kind of understand that and be empathetic to those students? Sure. So if I, if I am working with a colleague that's new to this process, hopefully I've, I've assessed that they are a little empathetic to the situation and that I've talked, I've given them some background. And in and the ideal world, the student's actually sharing uh, openly with the with the faculty member. Um, a lot of times our institutions just have to be a little more flexible about uh, how to manage around things like this. For a, a Native American community, for Northern Cheyenne community, if there's a death in the family or important event, I need to be there. And so sometimes that is we have to, institutions have to be a little more flexible about pushing back a midterm or pushing up a midterm can, can help a student not feel trapped between family responsibilities and their educational responsibilities. I have given students advice and helped them communicate to their family, look, this is midterm time. I can be there in two weeks. Is that okay? And so a lot of times the students quite don't quite know what their options are to how to navigate the system at the institution and navigate their family. 
there's some complexity between that and I don't get into that conversations with the family so much but it's mostly working with the student to try to help them feel like they're making a good decision and not hurting their academic process. Ultimately our institutions and a lot of institutions are getting better about this as they actually do have some flexibility on when you take exams or you let a student drop an exam. There's different ways that the institution could be a hell of a lot more open to bringing our families along through the education process. When you were going through grad school and undergrad, did you feel a pull between this new academic world that you were getting into and what you grew up with in your experiences with your family and your background? Early on, my family understood ecology and why I was doing that. We grew up paying very close attention to nature in Montana. They understood the work to an extent. Where it got more difficult for them was when I stayed away from the state of Montana long term. I, I would, of course, come home at least once or twice a year minimum. Uh, when I first started graduate school, it was old enough that, you know, you called collect. My mom would not accept the charge, and then she would call me back. So, you know, as far as maintaining ties to my community, you know, there was a couple early years in my grad school where I didn't get back to the reservation for, I just, I'd go to, our hometown was, where my mom was, was off the reservation nearby, but I, was, I didn't get onto the land. I didn't get in the hills with my grandpa or my uncles, and so... I started making sure that when I did go back to Montana that if I could take half a day and just get in the hills with my uncles and my grandfather then passed. So I also built community where I was at. So I sought out other natives, other brown people. My lab had, you know, the only African-American in our department and, you know, know, we're best friends. Um, And that happened at two different, you know, I did a master's and then a PhD and then, you know, I... I latched on to my other students of color, we kind of, and so my tightest friends in the world are from graduate school. So you build family around that. I got better at communicating what I was doing and why I was doing it to my family. But, you know, I'll give you an example. Even during my postdoc, I was like, well, when are you going to come back to Montana and get a real job? And I'm like, and I had to remind them I've been a professional biologist since I was 18. And I've been getting paid to do this for 16 years. So, you know, I had all the letters that you want to get beside your name for a biologist. They still viewed me as kind of a student. I remember telling my family that I was taking summer courses in undergrad and they thought I was um, like in trouble, like my grades were bad because I was taking summer courses. They didn't understand that I was just taking extra classes to like graduate sooner. Yeah. All of that training that you have to do with your family when you're first gen low income is something that I don't think people realize that you spend a lot of energy and it can be emotional energy i tend to think that those tend to lead to really creative problem solvers though as a scientist moving forward there there's some nice research showing how people tend to can feel more isolated as they move up through academia but again there's some ways that you can ameliorate that through connections building your ability to communicate science effectively i mean when you're coming from an underrepresented background and you get any degree by your name, you're going to be put into positions or opportunities to be a leader. I wanted to have two things. If you could say to a student who is maybe coming to this conference, or maybe a student that doesn't know about the Agnes conference, what would you tell them to to help them succeed in science? And then on the, on the flip side, if you could talk to colleagues that are scientists, that are people in STEM, what would you tell them 
to help students, underrepresented um, students, succeed. And I know that there isn't like one thing. I, I totally know what is one of the things that you would tell them, I guess, is, is what I want. Because I know that there's not a cure, right, for low numbers. So here's what I would say to faculty, and I've been saying this at, at, as one of my concluding slides based on some data, which is there are underrepresented students on the job market, talented, that are not in your network. How you were trained is not going to diversify STEM. So if you're not at a conference like this, or if you're not actively seeking people out there to diversify your field, you're not going to react. You're not going to be ready for the reality of in 12 years, the entering freshman class is going to be minority majority. And our higher level education, our faculty positions, our deans, our provosts, our presidents, are so far behind in getting close to that. So the take-home message, and it'll be very succinct, is they're out there and you're not hiring them. So the ball is in your court, and I show them the data. So I try to connect with scientists as, sci as a scientist. Like, you're doing bad science when it comes to diversity work and hiring. Um, and so the idea that there's few and far between doesn't sell, just doesn't. I think this conference shows that. It totally does. And obviously we don't have every single minority postdoc and, and grad student in the country at this conference. We have a lot of them, but the talent is here and it's up to the universities to start becoming a lot more creative in hiring. So we have some major efforts that have to be done by our institutions if we want to be relevant moving on in the next 15 to 20 years. And look, we serve the public. so. If our institutions do not reflect the public, this, those dollars will dry up. Then the question about uh, students, uh, what I say to them regarding getting into science, try it and for the most part, you know, learn how to apply, figure out that you hate something. Go, go try ecology, go try lab bench science, go try geology, physics. Find out you hate it, cool. All right, you, you move on. You've, you've figured out an area that you, you're, you're not interested in. Those are some challenges that I don't think students typically think about is they think that they have to know everything and just get your feet wet. It's easier to get back into a lab after you've done something. It's the unknown and diving in and I tell students all the time you can do 10 weeks and during a summer anywhere in the country and you know there are at every institution there's people of color that are there to help either at your peer level or there'll be knuckleheads like me or faculty and hopefully a growing number of faculty. The one nice thing about the conference, particularly for, for students, is, and this actually applies to grad students, postdocs, and faculty, is Sockness does have a reputation around the country. And so you can actually use that. Um, my wife used it in her job talk. She had to do a chalk talk and she talked about kind of her vision for the future. And Part of that included some Sockness activities, and she got a lot of positive feedback on that specific point. I did want to ask the one last question. How is your field, your background, anything that is part of your identity represented in pop culture? And give me a good example, like an accurate example, and give me a terrible example. Okay. I worked at Natural History Museums through most of my PhD and, and postdoc. Yeah, exactly. So Indiana Jones is a horrific depiction of museums in general. I mean, he's running around ripping off indigenous cultures. He's not 
carefully studying anything that that is complicated for native people to think about you know storing of dead animals and bones um, often can be uh, problematic culturally and so it's not necessarily for everyone yet or you have to be able to justify even to the general public but, but particularly to native people why you're doing what you're doing and I have a good answer for that related to conservation and and understanding biodiversity so we can make informed decisions. I mean, I love natural history museums. I just, you can see the world through a natural history museum, but just opening up drawers. You know, there's, um, as a field biologist, there's just these opportunities for us to kind of change the uh, narrative about what a scientist does, a field biologist. And there's been some really cool things that have tapped onto this in social media. Um, how to be a black birder was kind of a video that's out that a friend of mine and have talked a lot about and his experiences bird watching, and, and also related to this has been kind of an interesting hashtag that a colleague uh, at Virginia Tech got started called hashtag Fieldwork Fail, where scientists share their funny moments, and um, I had a funny one that is by far my most popular retweet. Um, I was live trapping rodents in West, West Texas. Couldn't identify the rodent. Field guy didn't help. It was a hamster. <laughs> awesome. I think we're gonna. I think we're gonna stop there. Thank you so much for talking with me, Corey. Um, you're awesome. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. We interviewed scientists at the Sackness National Convention, which focuses on making STEM more inclusive. If you missed any of our show, go to our website sparksciencenow.com or to kmre.org and click on the podcast link. We'll be back again next week. Listen to us on 102.3 FM in Bellingham or KMRE.org streaming on Sundays at 5 p.m., Thursdays at noon, and Saturdays at 3 p.m. If there's a science idea you're curious about, post a message on our Facebook page, Spark Science. This is an all-volunteer-run show, so if you want to help us out, go to sparksciencenow.com and click on Donate. Today's episode was recorded on location in Long Beach, California in October 2016. Our producer is Regina Barbara DeGraff. The engineer for today's show is Natalie Moore. Special thanks to the Society for the Advancement of Chicanos and Native Americans in Science, which is what SACNA stands for. Our theme music is Chemical Calisthenics by Black Alicious and Wonderland by Janelle Monet. Lead, gold, tin, iron, platinum, zinc. When I wrap your thing, iodine, nitrate, activate. Red uranium, the only difference is I transmit sound. Balance with some balance, then you add a little talent in. Careful, careful with those ingredients. They can explode and blow up if you drop them and they hit the ground.